need a bigger boat. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Life, uh, finds a way. Welcome back to Spielberg Chronologically. This is the podcast for myself and Eric. Hey there. We go through every single one of Spielberg's movies in chronological order. And yeah. well, we, we've got this hidden gem we're working on this week. One, one that people might not have heard of before. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, and it's about a character named Indiana Jones. You know, it's interesting. I was reading online... Uh, that, you know, this movie came out in 1981 and it was not anticipated to be a hit. Like there was very little interest in its, uh, in its release. The, the studios kind of felt that everybody was going to funnel into Superman two and ignore Raiders. So it was, uh, it was a surprise that it was a hit and it actually took several weeks to ramp up to the number one spot and, and kind of pull attention away from some of the other movies that were going on but when it did finally make it there then it just locked in and stayed for you know months and months and played yeah, for this, over this is before uh you know home video was readily available so things would stay in the theater for eons forever yeah absolutely and then it would take like even when home video was a thing it would still take forever to come to home video so yeah, unlike this current environment that we have where everything is weirdly on home video and at the theater at the same time. <laughs> I'm here for it, frankly. <laughs> I'm kind of here for it, too. Unless it's Marvel, I'm just going to watch it at home. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually waiting on Batman, which I thought I would never say in a million years. But it's yeah. like, it's coming out in the middle of next month. Like, by the time and this episode airs, it will long. already be on HBO, you know? Yeah. Like, so, yeah. And you could... You could pause it and go to the bathroom during a three-hour film. I'm really looking forward to it, but I, I can wait. Yeah, I can wait, too. Yeah. So, uh, what's your relationship with Raiders? You know, I, I, I'm glad you asked, because I was going to ask you the same thing. So, I'll go first. Too bad. I beat you to it. Uh, my first experience with Raiders was the Marvel comic book adaptation, which I had when I was in really? fifth grade. Yep. I did not expect that. And I absolutely loved it, and I read it and read it and read it, and then finally, when Raiders was in like when it was in the, when it was down to like the dollar theater, my family finally took me to see it. Oh. You know, so I was not able to go see it in like the first run. So I waited like a year with this comic book and probably the novelization, which I read like fifteen times before I actually got to see the film. That's amazing. I love it, that. And so I was so amped to see it. I think I drove my parents crazy on the way to the theater because I just kept saying, I can't believe we're going. I can't believe we're finally going to get to see it. And uh, and so, yeah, so obviously that that was like a big, big thing for me because it was such a, a monumental film and all the other kids at school had seen it. Um, and I, of course, loved it. And then uh, I've, home video was, like you said, very new at the time. And I remember this guy down the street had a Betamax machine and he had Raiders on, on Betamax. And uh, I volunteered to babysit his kids just so I could watch Raiders on Betamax. <laughs> and they, they actually came home when I was halfway through the movie. And I was like, can I just stay in? Can I just stay and finish Raiders? And they were like, yeah, OK. So uh, eventually my family, we got our own VHS player and we had two purchase tapes, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Ghostbusters. And so, as a result, uh, I, that's why I know they're, they're so hidden in the depths of your heart. They are. They are like, I they're memorized. You know, like I was watching this film with my family last night, silently mouthing along. It was like sing along time. You know, like because I know every line of dialogue in this film. It's it's like Jaws. It's one of those that is just like in my DNA. At this mm -hmm. point, you know, like I, I know and love this movie. Um, and so, you know, I did my best to kind of look at it through fresh eyes and, and look at it through the through the lens of, you know, the overall scope of Spielberg's work for this show. Uh, but it was very hard to turn off that the you know, child inside. Exactly. I love your story. Boy. I love that you had the novelization first. What got me into reading was uh 
superhero books. So back in when I was in high school in the 90s, you could they had novels and they still do today. But there was a point where I don't know if it hit like a a boom period, but I would buy a Spider-Man book and then read that novel. And that's how I got into the comic books was through the written words so i just i love that you had to get raiders however you could because you couldn't see the theater in the theater that's that's a great story well yeah absolutely and it's it's kind of funny uh because during this time period that was that was the only way to experience films outside of the theater so i had a lot of those novels like i had the ghostbusters novel and i had the goonies novel and i had you know raiders um and then interestingly like some if you still have some they might be worth a pretty good amount of money i do and i still have that because Raiders comic book too it's in the basement right now they uh the the only well there are several like collectible books but uh movie tie-in books they become hugely expensive because of the rights. Like you can't go and find uh, there's a Friday the 13th book that's really hard to find. And you can't find it because the uh, copyrights worn out on it. So you can't just go buy it on Kindle. You have to go get the paper book and it's worth a lot of money. So that's if you still have some of those, they, they might be worth a, a, a pretty penny. Oh, no, they're pretty beat up, man. Like mine are pretty dog eared and like those color pictures that's, that are in the center of the book are loved. all falling out. They're loved. <laughs> oh, that's it warms my heart. Yeah. Yeah. So what what was your uh, Raiders experience? To me, this is the uh, before watching it. All of this is before watching it today. How I felt about Raiders is the. Bad movie, not bad, is the less good movie that finally got us to The Last Crusade. Um, I saw The Last Crusade first. Okay, okay. And it blew my mind, and I loved everything about it. And then I watched Temple of Doom, and was like, ah, all right. And then I watched Raiders, I'm like, this is kind of dull. And I just wrote it off. So anytime I do Indiana Jones... It was Last Crusade. I didn't bother with the other ones because they just, to me, weren't as good. And I don't know how much of that Sean Connery. Um, and I still today would say, we'll get to it when we get through all the movies, that the best one is still Last Crusade. But to me, having seen Last Crusade first, the Raiders felt like it was missing something. And I think what I felt that it was, was, you know, uh, man, all of a sudden just blanked on his name. Sean, Sean Connery. Connery. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I've never, and I, I think this is going to be a running theme throughout our podcast, like with Jaws. I never had that same relationship with Raiders. I did with Last Crusade. Like, I love when he goes through the caverns and he's setting off the traps and the, the penitent man will pass and like the opening of this movie where he's going to get the gold idol. That to me is like, that's what I love. Um, and then his interactions with his dad. So that that's how I felt going in. Interesting. You know, I, I can kind of get behind that. Like, I understand that. And I have my own opinions on on my favorite and least favorite Indiana Jones movies, which I suppose we can wait until we get further into the series to kind of dig into all that. It's Crystal Skull. Right. I mean, well, of course. Yeah. Number one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but I, I think it's, I think it's probably a lot to do with the age at which you first experienced these films, yep. you know, like I'm sure there are Marvel and, fans coming in and like, you know, Iron Man three is their Iron Man because that's the age at which they aged into that yeah. series. And then they and go I back and look at the other ones. Raiders like, oh, okay. was scary too. When I was a kid, like it was what, what year did you say? 81? Yes. So I was born in 80. And so this had been in the background. And I think probably when I first experienced it, it probably scared me because there's snakes and there's zombie, not zombified, but like mummies and gross things, face melting. And it probably turned me off of the series until I got old enough not to be afraid. And by that time, Last Crusade was out. You right. know? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I, I showed this to my children, my small, my younger children last night. And they are five and nine. 
And going into it, I was saying to my wife, like, I, I don't know if this is a good idea to my wife. I was like, this, <laughs> this, like, I don't know if you're remembering Raiders as well as I'm remembering Raiders, but there are moments, particularly the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes that are going to flip these kids out. And it didn't like, it just didn't. And that's they're they're the new generation where this stuff is on the you could see someone's real face get melted off on the internet nowadays. I was shocked, like when when Bellex's head explodes at the end of the movie, my nine year old was like, "Oh!" Like she, she was like totally into it. Like she turned awesome. around at me with this giant grin on her face. Like it worked for her. Like the effect worked for her. You know, but it was like this this joy on her face as opposed to being freaked out by it, which I expected. And uh, the beginning with the with the spiders and, uh, you know, like that, I, I thought maybe like uh, when Doc Ock gets speared, you know, and they show him being speared through the head. Like, I thought that maybe that would freak out my son uh, who's five. And no, he just it's just blew right through it. And so it, it's funny that you talk about it being scary because I kind of always consider parts of this film to be scary and uh my kids you know i think the only piece that really got them is the rando part when they could they're coming out of the well of souls and they go into that next chamber and there's all those dead people in there yeah and and it's it's a weird moment because it doesn't kind of fit in with the rest of the film. My question is, why didn't they try to go into the souls, den of souls or whatever from the entrance they exited out of? Right, go through that wall. Exactly, because it was pretty easy for him to push that giant block of sandstone <laughs> you know, out of the way so they could get out. So, so that's that's where I was and where I am today after rewatching it is pretty much in the same place. Um, okay. This movie to me is fine um and i i get that there's probably blew people's minds and all of that because at the time there's nothing like it but i i still feel like there was something from a character perspective missing for me um and i I, sean connery is probably it well i will say that last crusade has a much lighter touch yeah. You know, like, like basically, you know, Raiders kind of walks a fine line between, you know, darkness and humor. Temple of Doom just goes right off the cliff into darkness, you know, and yeah. is super dark. And then uh, it really lightens up with The Last Crusade. And a lot of that movie is, you know, although they are in dire straits in a lot of that movie, like the humor is really well implemented and played up. And and so it's a more set fun. Pieces. It's a more fun movie to watch. And I think it's more visually appealing and the set pieces are more interesting. They're on a blimp at one point. They're, you know, they're in the caverns that they've got the car chases. It just it feels like the culmination of all the practice on Indiana Jones coming together. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that's that's 10 years of uh, experience there coming together, you know, to be able to pull off some of those extraordinary shots. I did I did read that. Going into Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, Spielberg kind of had this reputation as going over on budget and and schedule. And so it was built into the contract that he was going to bring this one in on time and on schedule and on, and on budget. And so, you know, as opposed to doing, you know, 30 or 40 takes like he was used to, he limited himself to four. And I think that it made it a lot leaner and faster and tighter of a movie uh, to, to like pull his need for experimentation and just, you know, like endlessly, you know, jerking off, you know, yeah. like, like he had to get it done. Um, but I also do think that maybe some of these set pieces would have been more elaborate and, uh, and, and detailed had he had, you know, the time and budget to really kind of push them. Yeah. That being said, there's still really great stuff i mean the face melting is still great i mean it doesn't it's not gonna fool anyone you know what i mean but it's still good uh yeah i mean there are some some great moments great iconic moments in this film you know the airplane fight is fantastic um you know uh of course the opening scene is probably the most memorable piece of the movie So, so much of this movie for me I have experienced through parody. 
Again, comedy, my favorite genre. I love slapstick. And so things like UHF starring Weird Al Yankovic, the whole opening of that is lifted from Raiders and is a parody of Raiders. Um, there's a movie called Top Secret starring Val Kilmer, Val Kilmer's first movie, that is heavily inspired. Uh, a lot of the gags come from this movie, and I didn't realize it um, until watching this this time. I'm like, oh, that's from Raiders. There's a point in Home Alone that is inspired by this. What's that? It's the burnt hand. Oh, where he burns right. his hand and he's got the thing on it. And, um, you know, that's like, oh, that's like in Home Alone. You know, my reverse brain. Having seen Home Alone a billion times and this may be just one or two. Um, and then there's a character, an actor in this who's in Top Secret uh, who plays a character called Chocolate Moose in Top Secret. And he's like the second hand on the captain of the ship that's when they're leaving. Yes. Uh, that's I always know him as Chocolate Moose uh, from Top Secret. Uh, and he's the same character. He's not quite the same. He's not as goofy and over the top. But he has the deep Chocolate Moose, deep voice. And uh, he's awesome. Um <laughs> The movie it's, is really, it, it's in the zeitgeist. Again, with yeah. my nine-year-old, like, she's nine. She's never seen this film before. She has spent, you know, the last nine years watching Teen Titans Go and, like, little kids show. Like, Teen Titans Go is not a little kid show. But but little kids shows mm -hmm. like My Little Pony and stuff like that, you know, on Netflix ad nauseum over and over again. But watching this film at the beginning, like, she turns around and she looks at me and she's like, oh, he's got to switch the sand for the idol. Like, that's why he got the sand how do you how do you know that you yeah. know and she's like well, everybody knows like he's gonna switch it and, then I, and like she knew beats from this film before ever seeing the film and she's nine mm -hmm. you know like somehow this has culturally crept in around the edges to my nine-year-old and she already knows some of the stuff from this film that's how prevalent this movie is in our culture yeah and so let's start from the beginning then um first note here and uh, this is more of a question than anything. Do you feel that Alfred Molina is wearing brown face in this scene? Yes. Absolutely. And, and <laughs> okay, we're, we're just going right into it. Yep. Uh, That's um, the first thing I noticed. Because, one, when I'm watching the opening titles, I'm like, oh, Alfred Molina's in this? Because, again, I haven't watched Raiders that much. I maybe have seen Raiders twice before this week. Yeah, maybe it might even only be once because I've just thought it always thought of it as the inferior Indiana Jones film. And I've seen Temple of Doom for sure only once. Um, and I was like, oh, Alfred Molina. And then when I see him, I'm like. He's looking up. brown. He's looking, face? he's looking a little like, dark. Is he supposed to be tan? Is that a spray tan or is he playing another ethnicity? No, he is definitely playing a South American of some sort, you know, with his senior and amigo. Um, and yeah, so I I made a note about uh, the racial issues in this movie. And I was going to save it for later, but uh, this is this is the first time, like I said, watching this through the lens of having seen some of the other recent films, other films recently and so on. Uh, it, it really stuck out to me. Some of the some of the issues. I mean, Sala is the same issue. I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's Jonathan Reese Davies, who was giving yeah, me in that Lord was of the Rings. Be my second one and, because and he is also wearing brown face in this and movie in my brain. Now, granted, I know Jonathan Rhys-Davies played Gimli, but for some reason in my brain, I thought that he was of South American descent somehow, the actor. And then watching the movie, I'm like, oh, no, definitely not. Like, no, no he's, <laughs> he's Welsh. Been, his pigment has been covered up in this film. Yeah. Now, OK, so so just just to be clear on this, that was not unusual for the 80s sure. you know or, or for the 70s or all the time before that you know like this is something I, that that has really come to the fore in the last 10 years like like casting the correct people with the but, correct cultural background to, to play those cultural roles out. blackface was way out yeah right. and, and, so and that's and, what i'm like it, it, at we knew enough now granted blackface has a 
lot of different connotations in America because of like the minstrel shows and it was a practice in entertainment for a long, long time. So it definitely there's different stuff going on. And I know this because of the blackface and all the damn Hitchcock movies I watched now. Uh, but you still know enough to say this is not OK, but this is totally and, fine. And, and I think it was at the time totally fine and if you think if you think about it you know in terms of our culture today this would never fly this would no. never ever fly uh at this point like at this point we've got you know if it's a trans role you cast a trans person you know if if it's a role about i don't know like like uh yeah, i mean that, that show uh, uh yellowstone right now um it's super popular cbs uh, online show whatever it doesn't matter where it comes from but there is a role a, a major role with a, a native american woman and they cast somebody of asian descent in in that role and she looks for all the world like a native american person and she is a fine actress a great in the mm -hmm. role but people still you know that show's been on for three four years now people are still giving them shit about that casting because uh, you know, they could have and perhaps should have cast a Native American in that role. So, you know, things have come a very long way from this time. Uh, but yeah, it is it is interesting. And, and not just the racial politics in this movie, not just involving the brown face, but involving the depiction of the Havitos, you know, and mm -hmm. the, the depiction of the Egyptians. Um, and it we're getting into a lot of what we got into with 1941 where it's like, okay, so this is a film that is made in the way in the style of 1930s films. So does that give them a pass to depict these cultural norms as they existed in the 1930s or should they have updated some of this, you know, to be in line with the 1980s and you know, there's a real debate to be had there. I think you have to have a commentary on it, right? Like, if you're going to do something that we now realize is not the right way to do things, I think you need to be able to offer, in some way, a commentary on why it's not okay. Like, if you do a movie featuring blackface, and you're doing it to portray how things were back in the day, there probably though no, there needs to be some sort of commentary on to me why that's a problem or at, at least shown in that way i kind of otherwise why are you doing it and it, but in this particular specific issue of two white actors with brown face is that what you've done is you've prevented a brown actor from getting a role in a major hollywood picture and that's why, and, and one of the things I think about with this podcast is I'm like, okay, what director do we do next? And the amount of women and uh, people of color that you can do a, a long chronological podcast on are f I, maybe non-existent, you know, like there just aren't, they don't get the same opportunities, but we could do Spielberg and Hitchcock and uh, what's that guy's name who I hate, who did The Shining, uh, Kubrick, <laughs> Kubrick, and, uh, Christopher Nolan and uh, James Cameron. And the list goes on. And that's just off the top of my head of prolific, well-respected directors. But when it comes to uh, people of color and women, it's really like the only director i can think of now you know like it would be jordan peele and he's got three movies you've got um m night m night Shyamalan, who again it's definitely one that i want to do for the show and but going beyond that i'm like okay what's the guy's name that directed black panther i don't know it right and i don't know what he's done next and i and you could say that's my fault for not doing the research but i also think it's hollywood's fault for not allowing people a diversified amount of people direct and create film and like we've jane campion the only reason people hear of her now is because she's insulted the serena sisters and it's like but she's made these films that people love like i don't it just 
And I think you could go back to this where you have the opportunity to cast two people of color and give them their shot. And you don't. Now, and Alfred Molina in this doesn't exactly turn in a great performance. Well, he's, you know, yeah, he's hardly in the movie, really. And this was his first film role. Um, and I don't know. Like, I, I do feel there's a lot in this film where if these guys were making this movie now, they wouldn't make the same choices. I do, I do think that as we get closer to modern day, we're going to see an evolution in their sensibilities and it, it, Spielberg sensibilities and, uh, you know, adherence to the cultural norms of the time, you know, yeah, as, absolutely. as we get closer to modern day, uh, there are going to be different choices made because, you know, he is, you know, going al- along with the curve of the culture as far as some of these, you know, racial sensitivity issues go. But uh, looking at some of these films through a modern eye, some of the stuff definitely jumps out at you in a way that it didn't jump out to me when I was a kid, obviously, you know. Yeah, and they hire, again, because blackface is wrong in this time, they hire a black man to play a black character of the, the captains of the ship. Yes. So... And he gets several on-screen speaking lines as the chocolate mousse. And uh, I just, like, that's my point. And, and, and I'm not really trying to bag on Spielberg and say, how dare he? And da, 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 da. But this is why it's important going forward for us to be aware of these things because it gives people opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have. And, and again, I know blackface specifically has a lot more at least in the united states connotations behind it than the the brown face issues that are presented in this at least as far as i know as a white guy but anyway that's we just again we jump right into the political deep end on this show well i mean in this case it's one of the first things you see in the movie yeah you know and it's super noticeable and and you know alfred molina since this film like he this is his first role, but you know he didn't. And he didn't need the role in Brownface. He's been just fine, you know, <laughs> like as an actor, um, very successful and so on. So, uh, yeah, it is. It is one of those things that you just kind of it just jumps right out at you as a as a modern moviegoer when you watch this. So let's talk about the good stuff. This opening trip into this cavern to get the. Um, the idol with the traps and this is just all you really want this to me like i'm watching this i'm like oh this is good it is this is good so he's got his guides and all that mess and there's a statue that the guy unveils and runs away from and it's like a oh bad omen or whatever but they don't really say it in this but they do in the movie uhf um <laughs> so so i get everything in this part i'm just comparing to uhf uh, because it's my favorite. Yeah. So again, with the the guides and things, like it's very unclear at this point why these guides are turning on him. I don't know. And like, that's the thing. The like, first guy who tries trusts- to sh- to shoot him, the first guy who tries to shoot him, why is that guy trying to shoot him? Like and at that point, and and Alfred Molina doesn't warn him or anything. And then after that, Alfred Molina is still like. Indiana Jones still trusts Alfred Molina. Yeah, and the the question is like, are these guys on the payroll of Belloc? Yeah, like are they are I they double agents and so on? Uh, but yeah, they are definitely untrustworthy uh, characters. So yeah, I mean, like, I don't know if we have to go beat for beat through this segment. Uh, yeah, you everybody seen it. everybody knows this segment. You know, my nine year old knows you, this segment. You get the iconic boulder, the giant ball. Again, chasing after Indy, which, again, brings me right back to UHF. We're going to watch UHF one week just <laughs> just because just I want to watch it. Um, and it's awesome. Like, you've seen it a billion times. I don't know. I mean, all right. So there are a couple things. We'll, we'll go more into generalities. I was surprised how violent this film was. It is um, mad violent. I really, it, it doesn't have a rated R but it is PG. It, so I'm pretty sure this pre-exists PG-13, right? 
It does. Yeah, PG-13 uh, came about as a result of films like Gremlins and Temple of Doom, which ramp up the violence even further than this. So at the time, the choices were PG or R. Apparently, this movie f- got an R its first time out because Bellux head explodes, which is why they superimposed the flames and in, in smoke and stuff over mm. that shot to kind of obscure it a little bit so they could get the PG. But yeah, it is, it is uh, mad violent. Yeah, I was... And even though, I mean, I've seen a through GIFs and whatever, the face melting of the guy with the black hat uh, a billion times, it didn't register to me that the rest of the movie would still be uh, people getting shot in the head. Um, there was in the bar fight, the guy gets shot in the forehead and there's a squib and blood. And I'm like, whoa. And it just, whoa. Um, yeah, that was a takeaway for me. Yeah, so I think like the beginning, the beginning segment. I I think the two the two big things that it establishes overall are it it brings Belloc into the film, right? And it establishes Belloc as this kind of counterpoint to Indiana Jones, which kind of persists throughout the rest of the movie. And it also establishes this dynamic where Indiana Jones loses; he doesn't get the thing that he came after he loses so and he the, runs away here's the note that i took after watching the movie and i never thought about it before bellic is i wrote the note bellic greater than symbol jones bellic wins 100 percent of the time bellic wins every single time Yes, absolutely. He's just better than Dr. Jones. Indiana Jones <laughs> does not win this movie. Uh, you know, he survives this movie. Right. But but in the end, all everything he does in this movie is for nothing. Like yeah. he could have just not been there and the result would be the same. The only the only end result that he delivers is that he brings the ark back to the United States instead of it just sitting on an empty island. Like right. and that's he gets what he to accomplishes. Reconnect with um his love interest, uh Marion. His extremely extremely problematic love interest. <laughs> okay. Delve into that. All right. I was going to I was going to save it for the questions, but I'm just going to go. Let's go. Let's go. Indy has to go find Abner Wavenwood to get the the stat the headpiece for the staff of Ra, right? So he travels to Nepal on the rumor that that's the last place Abner was. He comes in the room, Marion is there. He says, "Hello, Marion." She smashes the glasses. She says, "Indiana Jones, I always knew you're going to walk through that door." He thinks that it's cool. Like he gets this little smile on his face like we're having a reunion. She punches him, right? And she says, "What you did to me?" and and da 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 da. And then she says, "I was a child. You knew it was wrong. You did it anyhow." And he says, "You knew what you were doing." And then he says something like, uh, uh, I did what I did. You don't have to like it. You know? Wow. I don't know why I didn't pick up on this. So, okay. So the the implication is, and, and, and earlier in the film, like they say, Hey, do you know where Ravenwood is? And he says, no, I had, we had It kind of uncomfortably says, no, we had a falling out. I'm afraid. I don't know where he is. Right. The falling out was, Abner caught Indy banging his underage daughter, right? And and so I looked into it. You know, I dug oh into my it. Gosh. I did. I did my research. Right? <laughs> I was not prepared for this. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to read you this exchange. This is a transcript from the original 1978 story meeting with George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Lawrence Kasdan. Okay, so they okay. taped they taped their conversation about developing these characters. Get ready for your jaw to drop. I am ready. It's already dropped, but I don't know what else you have in store for me. Lawrence Kasdan. I like it if they already had a relationship at one point, because then you don't have to build it. George Lucas. I was thinking that this old guy could have been his mentor. He could have known this little girl when she was just a kid, had an affair with her when she was 11. Wow. George. Oh, my God. (laughs) George Lucas is a... Kasdan, and he was 42. 
Lucas, he hasn't seen her in 12 years. Now she's 22. It's a real strange relationship. Steven Spielberg, she had better be older than 22. Lucas, he's 35 and he knew her 10 years ago when he was 25 and she was only 12. It would be amusing to make her slightly young at the time. Spielberg, and promiscuous, she came on to him. Lucas, 15 is right on the edge. I know it's an outrageous idea, but it is interesting. Once she's 16 or 17, it's not interesting anymore. But if she was 15 and he was 25 and they actually had an affair the last time they met and she was madly in love with him and Spielberg says she has pictures of him. And that's the end of the the excerpt. So essentially, Spielberg's a pedo. Lucas is not Spielberg. Lucas, but what I meant to actually say, what the line was supposed to be is Indiana Jones is. Indiana Jones is. And they left this implication in the movie. They scaled it back, you know, so that you could read it a different way. I asked my wife this morning, because she watched the film with me last night, how she read it. And she said, oh, I kind of thought that she meant that she was like 18, 18, 19. That's how I would take it at the time. Because no maniacs are going to sit here and (laughs) write a preteen. Oh my gosh. Right, right. And, and so she she felt that this was like Marion's first love affair and then Indiana Jones left her and that's why she's mad. But, but in reality, works. the way if that she, they... if she's 18 and he's 38, it still works. Yes. And it's she not was as young. problematic. She was young and he was kind of taking advantage uh, advantage of her naivete. But the way that it's written, Steven Spielberg or uh, Indiana Jones is a statutory rapist at best a child molester at worst, you know, and, and they left this in the fucking movie. And I have no idea what was going through their heads that they left this crazy ass. He banged her when she was a kid and now she's mad about it. And she's like, she's confronting him. Like you raped me when I was a child. And he says, I did what I did. You don't have to like it. Now go get daddy a beer. You know, like, like it's the shittiest response. <laughs> like the whole situation is so shitty. And it just, it, it, it changes the whole movie. It changes the whole movie and it taints the character. Like the character already, like I'm, I'm 90% convinced that Indiana Jones is a bad guy. Like he's the hero of this movie and he's fun to watch and he's a fun character and it's a fun movie, but I'm, like Indiana Jones is not a good man. He is not a good human being. And, and a large part of that comes from this exchange between those two, um, which is just absolutely jaw dropping and speaks a lot to Lucas. (laughs) Grown ass men sit in a room, have this discussion and none of them go, you know what? Nah. Right. Like brainstorming. There's no bad ideas in brainstorming. That's we're just, not we're true. We're just spitballing <laughs> here. We're just spitballing. But, you know, like at some point after the spitballing, somebody goes, you know what? That child molester thing, probably not the best let's tactic. Cut let's, that. Let's, let's like pull back on that a little bit. <laughs> but they left it in. They it's left it in. bonkers. The and this explains why she's like an alcoholic or at least, I don't know if she's an alcoholic, but she certainly drinks a lot and is able to... Uh, drink more than men twice her size and so she's clearly an experienced drinker so that would maybe explain why because of this childhood experience yeah holy shit yeah and i mean like i think out of all the female characters that we've seen uh with the pop possible exception of lou jean in sugarland express uh marion definitely has the most agency you know like like i feel like she uh she can rely on her own wits there are points in this movie where indiana jones could rescue her and he refuses to he he cares more for the arc and his career and getting crap in a museum which we could get into that being problematic because he just goes to other people 
native lands, steals their own stuff, and runs and then, away. He's a and grave throws robber. it in a mu- museum. <laughs> That's to him the best, most important possible thing you could ever do. Right, saving and, this, saving this woman that uh, you know was his victim ten years ago uh, doesn't take priority over over getting the ark. So he doesn't save her, but she does. Then oh, she pivots and she's like. I got to do this for myself now, you know, and she comes yeah. up with her own and plan when you started to get the hell out of there. I'm like, I didn't see anything particularly problematic because I didn't know about all the subtext, but I like the character of Marion. I think she does very much kind of handle herself. She's very confident and wily in her own way. And I think probably smarter than Indiana Jones. Um, I so, think yeah. that, that Marion is the best female that they have in the Indian, I don't think they were ever able to top her. I hate Willie in the Temple of Doom. Hate her. Like I feel like she ruins the movie. Yeah. Uh, like I, I said, I've only seen that once, so I can't even. Yeah, uh, picture the, her. The I lady mean, outside in, of Short Round in Indy, I can't. The Last Crusade lady is kind of in the middle. Like she's okay. She's she's her own character, and we'll have to like look at that with fresh eyes when we get to it. Uh, but Marion is for sure the best foil for Indiana Jones. She is like definitely the one who is most on the equal footing with him. Uh, there are moments where he has to rescue her from things, uh, but she definitely like takes her fate into her own hands at certain points too. And, you know, has that grittiness and gumption that she's going to, you know, she's going to get it done whether he does or not. You know, um, her motivation in the film is different from his. She's just mm-hmm. trying to get back to the U.S. She doesn't give a shit about the arc. Like, she gives a shit about getting back to the U.S. and getting some some cash because she's been trapped in this bar in Nepal all this time. So she's kind of along for the ride, but her motivation is not to get the arc for the United States government. You know, her motivation is just to get the hell out of there. And uh, so, yeah, I think that uh, that she's probably probably the best female character we've seen in Spielberg's films so far. I mean, Lou Jean was a bit of a nut job. Uh, Marion yeah, at least has her head on straight. She at least was interesting. Um, well, she drove the story. Character. She had agency, yeah. <laughs> you know, like she, she, she was the lead. Pushed the film forward, but... Um, I think that, that Marion it, it is definitely more grounded and has yeah. her head on straight and is, you know, pushing her own character arc forward throughout the film um, in, in a way that some of these other women that we've seen have not. So I want to talk about how maybe this movie has affected me throughout my entire life without even knowing. Uh, as I'm watching the scene where there's snakes, why did it have to be snakes? I'm remembering all the snake nightmares I have. I A reoccurring thing for me is going outside and there being venomous snakes everywhere. And I can't, everywhere I could possibly snap, step, there's a venomous snake. I had a dream one time where I took a, a dog to a dog park and there were just venomous snakes everywhere. And I'm just like, I wonder how, if this is why I have that dream all the time. This movie m- messed me up, hmm. like at a young age, you know. <laughs> like yeah. they put it on in the background. That's hideous. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things though that drove me crazy in the snake scene is all the rattles and no rattlesnakes to be found. That is an interesting point. The snakes Always, seem- just every if they 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 hiss some of them fine. Almost all of them, cobras, pythons, everything but a rattlesnake rattles. You'll hear, and I'm like, okay, where I'm looking for the diamondbacks, and there aren't any. Uh, Just annoying for me as someone who grew up on, uh, you know, crocodile hunter, and I know one or two things about a snake. Yeah, the, the snake scene is interesting for a lot of reasons. It's a lot of snakes, and the, the number of snakes seems to kind of change from shot to shot. Um, apparently, during filming, Stanley Kubrick, whom apparently you hate, uh, his daughter yeah, came... Yeah, he and I, we don't get along. Uh, yeah, he and I don't get along too well either, actually. His daughter came to visit the set, and she ended up calling PETA on them for their treatment of the snakes, and they had to shut down production <laughs> Good for a while. Her. <laughs> because uh, she felt like they were mistreating the snakes, uh, probably were, which is interesting. And and this time I knowing was watching Steven Spielberg. Snakes died on set. Knowing him, the maniac, oh. this young maniac. 
he, yeah, he is crazy. Yeah, my wife was horrified when when Indy like takes the gasoline and sprays it on the snakes and then like throws the. She's like, is he just burning the snakes? <laughs> or maybe it was my daughter. What of them? I don't mind was horrified. That. Like because it's off screen and you know yeah. it could be water. There's a way to do that in a humane way. But yeah, um, there is the shot. Uh, there's first the shot where. Indy comes down and he's face to face with the Cobra the Cobra. Yeah. Right. And, and I, th- I remembered very clearly being able to see the reflection and the glass between the two of them. And I was looking for it and I was looking for it and I didn't see it. And it's actually the shot where Marion falls. Okay. Marion falls I was and she comes and face to face. Then, then you can see the reflection in the glass. And I was and wondering if they would have. And it, it actually strikes. Yeah. Yeah. But there's yeah, glass which between is awesome. them. Yeah. Uh, but I they was, had to do something to piss that snake off. Oh, for sure. They were poking like, it with a stick. To, like, yeah, something in you, may, because cobras just don't go boop, boop, and strike for no reason. Right. Right. They just don't. Um, it's like, let's think about venomous snakes. They generally, if you leave them alone, they'll leave you alone. But in that movie, <laughs> they definitely poke that one with a stick. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting that you feel like the the snakes have uh, messed up your psyche. Yeah, I, I. Why do I have? Yeah, they did. I think maybe I don't know, but maybe it just. It's not really scared of snakes. Like if as long as I can see it, and actually, uh, I have a picture on my phone. I went hiking, found a little green snake. You know, I I like snakes, but just not. I just, I don't know why, but it's in my brain somehow. I have a note here. That just says his preferred haircut. Do you know what I'm talking about there? Because I don't. No, I have no idea what that means. My preferred haircut. His preferred haircut. I don't know. Okay, I was probably... I don't know. <laughs> just forget that. Um, What else do we need to talk about here? I, I've kind of run through my notes already. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about the similarities between Belloc and Indiana. and And how they are essentially working the same gig right like they were hired by opposing governments but mm-hmm. they're both working as agents of you know world governments yeah and one is working for the nazis which you know is worse <laughs> it is worse i mean really as a french guy yeah that's not in that's history, not the move it's one of those things where you could be like well that's that's the bad side, right? Sometimes you get like in wars, it's like, you know, the, the Israel and Pakistan, I'm not trying to take a side or get it political, but there's like different arguments there and each side has their own point of view. And, you know, but this is like, okay, Nazis are the bad guys. Let's just, we can always use Nazis as the bad guys. 100%. And they are all the way bad in this movie. Yeah. Like there are zero sympathetic Nazis in this movie. They are not humanized. <laughs> anyway. Just, just, so this is the thing that gets me to nowadays. Like when I watch this in the in, in years past and you see the Nazi symbolism and the, the swastikas and it just never bothered me. Right. I was just like, that's what Nazis did. But nowadays, because of the prevalence of like the far right and you know white nationalism they i find those symbols to be more disturbing to me yeah it's funny because like we grew up in this generation you know like our, world war ii was our grandparents so it was kind of removed from us and so we just kind of saw the nazi imagery as something historic that happened you know a long time ago but when this movie was filmed that was only 35 years ago mm-hmm. you know and, and this movie is how old now uh 40 years old so the movie was closer to the nazis than we are to the movie you know what i mean right um and so you know yeah like this this symbolism has definitely come back into the cultural for again and yeah i'm with you like uh it it is disturbing on a level that it wasn't you know when we were younger because fucking now we have to worry about nazis again yeah. for christ's sake a, you um, know? like the, jesus what are, my favorite stand-up comedians, uh, his name's Arge Barker, and he has a joke about how bad things are. He goes, there's a lot of pirates out there. And he's like, I wish I could say that. I never thought I'd have to say that with a straight face because my rule of thumb is once something is a ride at Disney, it's no longer a problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And that's kind of like, whoa, we're dealing with this again. 
So, um, any, yeah, that, that was something that I definitely took away. It was like, when I see them, I'm like, Oh, like it almost watching it in, in this idea of something that happened and that is now not a problem. And you see the symbols, it's just like, Oh, okay. They're the bad guys. Nowadays. I'm like, I definitely have a more emotional reaction to it. Like those sons of bitches. Yeah. You know, hundred so. percent. So, so back to Bellic, you know, they're fighting on opposing sides, but realistically these guys are doing the same thing. And you could yeah, if easily gets see paid by the Americans. He just does that instead. He just does that instead. Yeah. yeah they're, they're both like mercenary quote, archeologists in reality, grave robbers. Uh, and you could easily see them working together depending on who's writing the checks, you know, mm-hmm. like Marion even says to him, like, maybe someday we'll meet under better circumstances because you're cool. You know, like, I like you. <laughs> like, so yeah, you're working along. for the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, this was fun. Sorry, I have to pull this knife on you now. Um, so, so yeah. And she's I, great in that scene. The, she, um, the actress. Um, Karen Allen. Uh, Karen Allen. Excellent. Excellent in that scene. Just nails the drunk. Mm-hmm. But also, I, I she's awesome in the whole movie. So she is great, and she's great across the board. I've always enjoyed her and other things. You ever see Scrooged? Oh my gosh, <laughs> so good. <laughs> that's that's right in my wheelhouse. I, that's my sort of stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. I keep interrupting you. So, uh, like overall, like looking looking at the film through like the lens of all the stuff that we've just been talking about. Like, do you think that Indy is a good guy? No, absolutely not. He, and I don't know that I ever felt that way. <laughs> he have like, um, he's maybe at best the lesser of two evils. Yeah. Um, but no, and I feel like the whole that belongs in a museum is a way to justify his actions. Absolutely. To, to make him feel better about himself and also to justify it to the audience. He's 100%. The good guy because he wants it in a museum. Right, right. And the audience, you know, just goes along with it. You know, like, this is our good guy and we're just going to go along with it. But in reality, this dude is uh, an anti hero at best, maybe just an outright villain. Well, now that you add what you discovered into it, it definitely leans far more on the side of villain um well well, i also think that he spends a lot of the movie with his head in the sand like regarding the arc and the nature of the arc so in in the world of indiana jones supernatural stuff happens right temple of doom is a prequel to indiana jones so this character coming into this movie has already seen people live through getting their hearts ripped out. He's been possessed by demonic rocks. That. Like, like shit has gone down of a supernatural nature and he has lived through it, right? So, like, he already should have this healthy respect for what he refers to as hocus pocus. You know, oh, Marcus, I don't believe in a bunch of hocus pocus. Like... You fucking should, buddy. So yeah, but that's now you, that's them pulling a George Lucas. We're like, yeah, this happened before. And he already knew. You know what I mean? Right. The right. Plan all along. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in 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 the scope of canon, like he should already know. But obviously, when this film was made, they didn't know that that had happened before. Whatever. But like, even so, when he goes down into the well of soul, or not the well of souls, but the the map room, and he sticks that stake in the ground, and the sun hits a certain point, and a freaking magic ray comes out and lights up that thing, and it gets all super bright. At some point, he should have been well. That seems unusual. Like, like that was some supernatural crap that happened. You know, like why does the crate suddenly not have the words on it anymore? It's just been down in the hold of the ship. N- nobody says shit about it. You know, like like he he really buries his head in the sand. At two separate points in the movie, other characters are like, "Hey, Indy, you know this isn't to be taken lightly." Like, mm-hmm. this is not like anything that we've ever done before. You know, this is serious business, you know, and only at the very end, like, he actually sees lights coming out of the arc. And at that point, he's like, oh, okay, let's not, let's not look at this, you know, maybe, maybe there's something real going on here, um, which is interesting because, you know, like, he should have been suspecting already that you know, bad stuff was going to go down when they opened that arc, but he gives up. 
he gives up and gives, you know, hands his weapon over, doesn't save Marion just so he can see what happens when they open the Ark, you know, and and he should have known, you know, at least from the map room that, you know, this was not a good outcome, you know? Like, yeah. It was not to be trifled with. So, yeah, I don't know. I think so. Uh, no, I'm with you. I, I I get it. I don't think he's a good guy. Um, now, how much do you think this movie came out of Harrison Ford's roguish charm in Star Wars? Like they said, wow. He, it, I think maybe what they're trying to go for with this character is another Han Solo, uh, where he's roguish and you know Han Solo is not as anywhere near as problematic as Indiana Jones. He's actually straight up a, a thief and a smuggler. And, you know, yeah. How, how much do you think they saw that and said, wow, we've got a real star lead here. Zero. I, I think okay. that he, he was, he was among the last choices for the casting. Really? Um, yeah. They cast, they, they, they reached out to a ton of different people. The, there's like a rogues list of surprising actors that they tried to get in the role. And then they actually had cast Tom Selleck, in the role oh. and Selleck couldn't get out of Magnum PI like Magnum PI got picked up for series where would we be in this world today if Tom Selleck were Indiana Jones like where would Tom Selleck be where would Harrison Ford be like if you look at the uh, he'd be okay because he was already Han Solo he was already Han Solo and he has been in a ridiculous amount of like franchise films you know like he was Jack Ryan for a little bit you know he was Han Solo he was Indiana Jones he was the fugitive you know like he yeah. has had like this stellar run. he would have been okay yeah but yeah that's it's... interesting why Tom Selleck uh... I don't know if you think about it, he's got that kind of twinkle about him, you know, and he could pull off the humor. He's got a killer and... mustache. Okay, fine. You know, I honestly, I haven't seen that much Tom Selleck uh, to really be able to judge one way or the other. I can't remember anything I've seen him in outside of Magnum P.I. Was he in Cannonball Run? Was that him? No, it was Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds. The mustaches, man. It throws me off. Tom Selleck was in a pretty cool movie called An Innocent Man where he's wrongfully convicted and he goes to jail. That's a good one. It's all about it. It's like a prison movie. I like I that think one. I saw that, but I think I saw a remake of it. Maybe. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Well, um, so that's it. So, okay. Let me, their let me face just... melts. And then they, yeah. the last thing you see is, and, and this is, I kind of, it left me a little unfulfilled. Like they get the arc and they put it in a box and they shove it in a corner somewhere. And Indy's mad for some reason. And because it belongs in a museum. Yeah, and they go off and have beer or whatever, and he gets drunk under the table, which uh, leads to Karen which Allen. leads to the recurring theme in in all of Spielberg's films, which seems to be don't trust the government, don't trust the government. Like the government will screw you every time, you know. And and it's like I wonder how much of my own distrust of the government <laughs> is a result <laughs> of me watching Spielberg movies because it's like. Always, you know, like they are always going to screw you over, mm -hmm. you know, it, it like E.T., the government is not to be trusted, you know, uh, Sugarland Express, like don't trust them. They're setting you up, you know, um, in this, the government screws them over at the end. They had agreed to send it to the museum and they don't, you know, um, so yeah, it's it's interesting, and I think it's something that we should keep an eye on as we move forward, you know, through the rest of the films, that, that theme of, you know, the government is not interested in the individual, and it's going to, you know, bureaucrat you to death at best, you know, and, and outright try to kill you at worst, so... Well, so, yeah, it goes away, and then uh, he ends up happily ever after with Marion, kinda, yeah. kinda, mm -hmm. you know... So so yeah. Does I she show up in um any she, other movies? She shows up in the Crystal Skull. That's right. Okay. She's, yeah, she's in the Crystal Skull. Um and it's a Cuz she's um Shia LaBeouf's mom? Yeah, she's Shia LaBeouf's mom and it's definitely okay. a different Marion. It'll That's be That's another one I've only seen one time. Yeah, when we get to that to, to talk about how they changed the I'm character. I'm not a fan of Indiana Jones. Maybe you're I'm not. I'm starting to think that. Other than the Last Crusade, I'm like I didn't enjoy this that much, on even on a rewatch. I don't particularly like Temple of Doom. I didn't like Crystal Skull. Really, I think I just like Sean Connery. 
And like <laughs> it maybe the series should be Sean Connery's character. If they did that, I'd probably maybe be more on board. Maybe. Huh. Like my my end summary is like for all of my critiques and all this stuff that I brought up and all of these like issues that we just discussed, I still love this movie. Like, it, I, you know, like I could have easily gone the other direction with this podcast and just talked about how great and groundbreaking and wonderful this movie is. You know, um, I do think everything we talked about is absolutely legitimate and things that maybe I hadn't considered on prior viewings of this film. But I, I don't want to just leave the impression that that I don't like this movie because I actually do. You know, this yeah. is this is a, a classic, you know, like a, a formative film in my life. You know, and it definitely impacted the way that I watch movies and the way that I experience films and so on. And so, you know, just if if we're wrapping up, I, I do want to say that in the end, my my Raiders, the Lost Ark is, uh, opinion is like way over on the positive side, despite all this stuff that I just like threw out there to kind of dog it. Uh, <laughs> I think you and I are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum on uh, this yeah. one. Uh, uh, for sure. And I don't, and again, maybe if it had more of a hold on my childhood, you know, I, I would say something different, but, um, and Jaws is better than this. Uh, oh, it, I, I'll get behind that. I can get yeah, behind I that. Just, I'm not going to argue uh, that with you. Yeah. Jaws is better than this. Um, yeah, I, I, okay. So we are wrapping up, but instead of uh now i believe let me check my calendar make sure i'm on the right page here but i believe we're gonna do a little bonus episode next week so you don't have to wait two weeks oh is it next is it next i believe so hold on yes yes so um so uh instead of having to wait two weeks for your next episode where we would review et so again we're getting into the goods here the the absolute classics but uh I don't know much about this, but we're going to have a bonus next episode next week. And can you explain why we're reviewing this movie, even though it's not listed as Spielberg has directed it? Absolutely. So we're going to be reviewing uh, Poltergeist. And the reason we are going to be looking at this film and why it's a bonus episode and not a full fledged episode is, uh, the director of this film was uh to I, I don't know if you pronounce it tobe or toby tobe hooper T O B. i've always heard toby toby okay so it was toby hooper uh his previous uh claim to fame was texas chainsaw massacre which is a pretty major claim to fame mm-hmm. um spielberg wrote and produced poltergeist toby hooper is listed as the director however since the movie came out it has been strongly rumored by people who were on set uh, and, and, you know, participated in the making of the film that Spielberg actually ghost directed this movie. Um, he was under contract to direct E.T. at the time. And as part of that contract, he was not permitted to direct any other film simultaneously with E.T. And so there's a, a large contingent of folks that believe that Spielberg actually directed Poltergeist. It's known for sure that he was a second unit director and he directed large chunks of the movie. Um, but, you know, both of the two have kind of denied it over the years. Uh, Toby Hooper has unfortunately passed away now. Um, but it is it is there's enough controversy around it that it that people do believe that Spielberg at least had a very strong hand in the direction of this movie. And when you watch it and I'm looking forward to you watching it, uh, Jeff, but when you watch it, it feels like a Spielberg movie. Like it, it has that it's right down to the core of a film. It feels like a Spielberg movie. So, uh, so I campaigned to squeeze it in here and, uh, and <laughs> I don't I'm, mind. I'm, I'm I super like excited. Mode. I like breaking it up a little bit, which is why I was like, we could do UHF. And had I planned it, you know, maybe I could have done it before Raiders. Um, but I didn't think it would hit so many notes uh, for me as far as what I grew up with. But, yeah, I, I, I am 99% certain I've never sat down and watched Poltergeist. Oh. Uh, and, again, oh. I'm on note saying, you know, I don't like demons and all that shit. I just, it's not for me, but the things you do to podcast that's right that's right you're gonna make the sacrifice you're gonna take right. the hit for the team 
yeah, here we go. So, uh, again, next week you got yourself a bonus episode coming, and then we'll be back in two weeks with E.T. Um, check out the show notes if you want more from Eric or myself. Eric's got uh, the Gaming Nexus website. He's got the podcast for the Gaming Nexus. He's got his YouTube channel. You can find all those links in the description if you want more of me. Check out the movie Draft House where I review movies with Mark, and uh, we are not so set in a structure of doing things chronologically. It's a more of a grab bag uh, based on themes. Uh, also check out the Budget Arcade podcast where we review free-to-play and independent games wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I guess that's it. I guess that's it. I Who knew we were going to go down this road? I did not think... That you are going to be able to blow my mind. And you are worried <laughs> going into Jaws and maybe in even this one. is like, what can you say about these movies that hasn't already been said? And I never heard any of this. So I've learned a lot today. That's awesome. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to next week. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Much appreciated. <laughs>